0: couple of announcements before we begin. Friday afternoon, September the 16th, Ava Starr Shriver, the daughter of uh, Donnie and Debbie Shriver, uh, went to be with the Lord. A private memorial service for the family will be held this Wednesday morning. West Houston Bible Church is furnishing meals for the Shriver family, so if anyone wishes to help out with this, uh, please see Ann Wright after class. Uh, tonight, and in case anybody doesn't know who you are, kind of raise your hand there in the middle. Uh, so we'll be providing dinner for, they've got a lot of family in from out of town, and, and uh, that's they're going to be here for a couple of weeks, so we just want to help out with, with them. There'll be a prep school meeting for teachers, everybody involved there this coming Saturday, September 24th at 10 a.m. in the North Wing. Now this last weekend, or actually this weekend, we got a chance to go up to Washington, D.C. In fact, we just got back, we wheels down at 2.30 this afternoon, coming back from D.C. where we uh, went up to see the installation, commissioning of Dan Ingram as pastor of the National Capital Bible Church. I thought you all would want to have a report on that. There were several from Houston that went up. Before that, which was good to support him at this time. It's exciting to watch a new church get organized and call a pastor, especially in our nation's capital, and see how God's brought things together for them. They found a church that meets about five minutes from where Dan has lived for the last 12 years, and that as a Baptist church that uh, had, has a fellowship hall that they never use, so that's where they're going to meet, so it's exciting to see the Lord provide that. The, the core group of this group was a, a tape group down at Quantico, and now they've organized as a church, and some of the other uh, bit tape and video people there are pulling together, so that was exciting. Uh, Charlie Clough spoke on the subject of why... We're here both in the sense of why do we have an installation as well as what's going on in terms of a local church and the importance of organizing as a local church within the flow of biblical history in the church age. Then it fell to me to give a charge to the congregation. And then Dr. Thomas Edgar, who's the chair of the New Testament Greek exegesis department at Capital Bible Seminary and has mentored Dan as a professor through uh, his years at Capital Seminary, gave the charge to the pastor. And as I sat there, I thought there was something interesting going on in the dynamic as you see and witness the flow in the church age and how we're all part of the body of Christ and there's this constant interaction. Because when I was in seminary, uh, some 30 years ago, Uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Edgar had written a couple of books which I read and helped me think through some issues, and as well as Charlie Clough was already pastoring in Lubbock, and I was listening to his material, and here some 30 years later, we're on the platform commissioning a new pastor of a new church as he's getting started, and we just see this flow through church history. So Dr. Edgar gave the charge to the pastor, and then we had the laying on of hands, and uh, Reverend Clay Ward, who's pastor of Tullahoma, our Play Roma Bible Church in Tullahoma, Tennessee, uh, prayed at the uh, the prayer of dedication. So it was a tremendous time, and we need to make sure that we continue to pray for that church and that congregation as they get established. And now that they've all decided to enter into the angelic conflict in such a bold way, they've got a target painted right on them with a bullseye in the center of that congregation, so we need to pray for them. Also, one last announcement is we rushed into print last week to try to get a something in print, a tract in print that we can use when we talk with some of the Katrina uh, survivors and refugees that are here in Houston a book of promises called God's Powerful Promises and we've run the first edition and it's down here on the table to my left and this is the first edition and we've already seen some things know some things we want to add and develop and add to this as time goes by So, but this is the first publication that uh, uh, Dean Bible Ministries has produced so we'll just develop from there. The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer, W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Well, now we need to study the Word and be refreshed by the Word, so let's uh, take a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we're in fellowship, ready to focus on the study of God's Word under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Opportunity for you to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're indeed grateful for the witness that we have seen in this congregation, this group of individuals in the D.C. area who have uh, gathered themselves together and organized themselves together in the local church, and we continue to pray for them, for their witness, for their new pastor, Dan Ingram, and pray that they might uh, continue to be a steadfast and faithful witness to your grace and to your truth. Father, we thank you for this congregation here in Houston and the way you're working in and through us and for each individual that's involved, for the spiritual gifts that are being manifested and the mutual encouragement, and we just pray that this congregation can continue to be steadfast and faithful in our witness to your grace and to your truth. Father, we thank you that we can worship you freely in this nation. We continue to pray for our president. Pray for those who advise him. We pray for our military leaders as well as civil leaders that you might guide and direct them. We know that under your sovereign care you control the advance of history and you are working things out according to your plan and according to your will and purposes. And, Father, we pray that your name would be honored and glorified in this nation as we continue to support Israel and as we send out missionaries throughout the world. Father, now as we study Your Word, we pray that we may be strengthened, encouraged by this study, that we may gain a greater understanding of the uh, many things that You have provided for us in our salvation, that we may understand all that You have done for us, and that we may in turn be able to communicate it more clearly to others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our study on our salvation And as I pointed out last time, we run into a problem today because of the uh, poor vocabulary, especially when it comes to uh, the Bible, that many people have. So when you talk to people using words such as regeneration or redemption, imputation or propitiation or justification, people don't know what you're talking about. I pointed out the other night that in teaching a survey class at The College of Biblical Studies here in in Houston. That I've asked several questions of the class as to their familiarity with what most of us would consider to be basic doctrines, and they've never heard these words. And recently, I was uh, pointed out Thursday night that when I had lunch with uh, Dr. Mike Stallard, who's a professor at the uh, Bible Baptist Seminary up in uh, Pennsylvania, and it was a his time in the doctoral program at Dallas seminary overlapped mine that I was asking I asked him about the differences that he has seen in the students coming into the seminary over the course of time that he's been a professor at the seminary level and one of the things he commented on was that that many of the students that come in have never heard the word justification now think about that They'd never heard the word justification. It used to be in our society, even if you weren't a Christian and even if you had spent little time in Christian environment, at least you, if you had studied Western civilization or world history in high school, you touched on the Protestant Reformation and heard something about Martin Luther's stand for justification by faith alone so that the word would not be something totally uh, foreign to you. But we live in a world today where biblical terminology is uh, not found in our culture. In fact, many people—if you talk to school teachers—they they often discover that when it comes to Christmas, if somebody asks about why they why we celebrate Christmas and the name of Jesus is mentioned, there are many students today who's never heard of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Now, if you're a sharp school teacher. Uh, what you will do is you will uh, find out in the first part of your fall semester, try to discover who the Christian kids are in your classroom. And then somewhere along the line as Christmas approaches, you use those kids to give the gospel. And somebody asks a question, you say, Well, Bill, what's Christmas all about? And you've already identified Bill as a someone who is a Christian and understands the gospel, and then... Bill can give the gospel to the whole class and it doesn't come from your mouth as a teacher and so you just circumvent all of these other things. You just have to have to learn how to do in runs and be uh, a little crafty and a little cagey and think about what you're doing. So well, we live in an age when people just don't know basic terms of Christianity, not only outside the church, which is understandable, but inside the church. We talk about young men, women going to seminary, who have never heard the word justification. We're not talking about some uh, somebody from the uh, middle of the rainforest down in Africa or South America somewhere. We're talking about 20-something or 30-somethings who have been in church for a while and believe they have been uh, given the gift of pastor, teacher, they want to be a missionary or they want advanced Bible training, And they don't know basic biblical terminology. How can you read Romans and understand any of it if you don't have this terminology? So it's important to go through this. And as we have studied, the sort of touchstone, cornerstone issue in this basic series is the issue of truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father Except through me, and I focused on the fact that Jesus makes this claim of exclusivity, which sounds awfully arrogant to the unbeliever, to many people in our culture, even to many uh, in many people who claim to be Christians. They just think that this somehow is just uh, awful this is this is arrogant that that you think that you have the truth. And, and the way the world keeps shaping this and, is to make it sound like, how can you be so arrogant and say, you know the truth? How can you claim to know the truth? And it sort of puts you on the defensive. And I've been showing that if you really want to understand the exclusivity of the gospel, why it is that there's only one way and can only be one way to God, we have to start with who God is. That He is the sovereign Creator, and therefore He determines how things are going to run. He's the manufacturer, as it were. He's the one who made the world, the universe, the way it is, and made man the way He is. So He determines how things work. He sets the rules. In His righteousness, He has an absolute standard for those rules. So He always does the right thing. God is perfect in His character. So whatever He does is right. In His justice, He equally applies that perfect standard to every one of us. Nobody gets a, gets a, gets a head. Nobody gets a, a, a little uh, favoritism. Everybody has the same standard applied to them. In His immutability, He is consistent, so that He consistently and faithfully applies that standard to everyone throughout the ages. And because He is absolute truth, We know that there is integrity in what He says and He gives the truth and that the truth is something that can be known because He designed the world in such a way that He can communicate to us and we can understand that communication. And then He is love. And this is what moved Him to provide a perfect salvation for us. That from eternity past, He knew that man would fail, And so He designed the creation in such a way in all of its intricacies, in all of its interdependencies, in all of its uh, different manifestations so that all the systems that work together would be in such a way that He could provide a perfect salvation. And in His love, He designed a plan that He would send His Son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, to become a human being and die on the cross for our sins. And so he, he desires all men to be saved, the Scripture says, and so He has provided a salvation that people can learn about and people can understand and believe in. And his, in His omniscience, He knows everyone. He knows every person that's ever lived, and so He can provide a salvation that is available to all but is dependent in some sense upon the volition of everyone who responds. Scripture says that all our righteousness is like filthy rags and this is the starting point that nobody is worthy of being saved not one of us none of us deserves to be saved none of us deserves a salvation we don't get if we got what we deserved we'd all be going to the lake of fire Romans 3:23 says that all have sinned and falls short of the glory of God We have violated that standard So it's necessary for God to provide a solution Now as we've seen in our study There is a barrier between God and man And this barrier is comprised of sin, and the Scriptures break it down into different aspects. And the foundational block in the sin barrier is that of sin itself, and that is resolved on the cross by the doctrine of unlimited atonement. And we saw how that has a a foundation in the Old Testament, and it was developed... In the Old Testament through the Mosaic law, especially the Day of Atonement in the Jewish ritual calendar, and that atonement pays the price for all the sin of all humanity. And then the second problem in the and the sin barrier was the penalty of sin that is there was a judicial penalty assigned for violating God's righteous standard and this is resolved through what the bible calls redemption 1 peter 1:18 because we know that you were not because you know that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ. And so this is a a verse that focuses on His death on the cross as our substitute. He paid the price in full. So the penalty of sin was resolved by His redemption. He paid the penalty as a substitute for us. And then the third problem that we saw is the problem of the character of God. That the issue really isn't, as some people say, a problem with God's love. How can a loving God send His creatures... To the lake of fire. How can a loving God be so cruel? The real issue is how can a righteous God let sinners into heaven? Because God is righteous, He cannot have fellowship with anyone that is less than perfect, less than righteous. And, And the Scripture is designed to show that we cannot live up to that standard. And God's character had to be satisfied. His righteousness had to be satisfied. And this came through the doctrine of propitiation. Propitiation. The key word to remember when you hear the word propitiation is satisfaction. Satisfaction. And it's that aspect of the saving work of God through the substitutionary spiritual death of Jesus Christ on the cross, whereby the justice and the righteousness of God are satisfied concerning the sins of all mankind. First John 2:2 tells us that the propitiation was for all the world. And it goes back to the concept again illustrated in the in the Mosaic law with Israel of the mercy seat And the mercy seat covered the box of the Ark of the Covenant and inside were the symbols of Israel's sin. And the the cherubs who were associated with the holiness and righteousness of God would look down upon that mercy seat. And when the uh, high priest on the Day of Atonement brought the blood from the Lamb that was without spot or blemish, the sacrificial Lamb, placed it on the mercy seat, then it was a picture of how God's justice and righteousness is satisfied." This is played out actually on the cross. Hebrews 2.17 states, Therefore He had to be made like His brethren in all things, that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation, that is, satisfaction for the sins of the people. And 1 John 2.2 says that He is the propitiation for our sins, that is, believers, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So we saw these first three items, these first first three bricks in the barrier are all dealt with solutions that apply to everyone. Unlimited atonement, the sins of every human being were paid for by Christ on the cross. Redemption paid the price for everyone. It was universal. Propitiation satisfied God's character. But this is not enough to get us saved because there are other issues these relate to the foundational issues but we have three other problems and those problems are more subjective in nature one is spiritual death we're all born spiritually dead there is something about us that was lost in the fall when adam sinned he died spiritually he lost the capacity to have a relationship with god to understand divine things and to be able to have ongoing fellowship with God. And that capacity that allowed his soul to understand the things of God and to be able to relate to God is called the human spirit. And when he lost that, it was spiritual death, and the recovery of that is being made spiritually alive. At the same time, we're minus R. We lack righteousness. And so that problem has to be solved. And then we are in Adam. So that an individual, even though his sins are paid for, he still has to have a solution to spiritual death. He has to have a solution to the fact that he lacks righteousness. And he has to have a solution to the fact that he is uh, in Adam. Now the solution to these three things can only come as a result of the application of the first three. So the first three lay the foundation for it salvation but it's up to the individual to put his faith in Jesus Christ before these other solutions are applied and that's what we'll look at this evening spiritual death is resolved by what is called regeneration regeneration means to also to be born again regeneration focuses on the fact that we are spiritually dead Ephesians two one says, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins. This references the fact that we are all born spiritually dead. As you notice in the slide, I've drawn a line through the italicized phrase He made alive. The editors of the Bible uh, the translators of Ephesians two brought that phrase up from verse four because the the main idea has to do with being made alive down in verse 4, but it's such a long sentence in the Greek that you lose the thrust of where it's going, so they stuck it up there in the first verse, so in English it would make a little more sense. But the main idea that we're focusing on here is this verse emphasizes that we're all born spiritually dead. We're physically alive, but we're separated from God. Romans 5.12 tells us, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, so that we are all under that condemnation of spiritual death because of Adam's original sin. Romans 5.14 goes on to say, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned, in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of Him who was to come. And then in verse 20, that as sin reigned in death, as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Death reigns throughout human history because of Adam's original sin. So we're born spiritually dead, we're born physically alive. So what has to happen so we can have a relationship with God? Well, theologically, this term is called regeneration, and it has to do with the recovery of something known as the human spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. And the word natural refers to a soulish man, that is, a recognition that man is comprised of three components, body, soul, and spirit. We'll look at a chart illustrating that in just a minute. The natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. And as we look at this verse, there's an important connection between these two words, soulish or "sukikos, and spiritual, which is pneumatikos. So it indicates that there is a component missing. You're born... You have a soul which is comprised of self-consciousness. You know who you are. You look in the mirror, You wake up in the morning, and on a good day you recognize yourself. But even on a good day, your dog doesn't recognize himself. He doesn't have self-consciousness. That cat looks in the mirror and thinks it sees another cat. You know, you may think your cat's pretty bright, but it's not that bright. You have self-consciousness. You know who you are. You have a personal identity. You're created in the image and likeness of God. You have a mentality. You're able to think, hopefully, and reason. And then you have a conscience. You have norms and standards. You know the difference between right and wrong. And then you make decisions. You're responsible for your life. That's the soul. Now, when Adam was originally created... His soul had a capacity to relate to God so that in his self-consciousness he understood who he was as the image of God. In his mentality he could think correctly according to God's revelation. In his conscience he had a perfect set of absolutes because he was perfectly righteous and he chose to do the right thing and to obey God up to the point that he ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil at that instant he died spiritually he lost that capacity to relate to god so he no longer understood who he was as an image bearer of god and what's the first thing he tries to do he tries to he's hiding from god he tries to cover up his nakedness by creating clothes out of fig leaves and uh, he's no longer aware of who he is as the representative of God. Uh, In his thinking, he now has his thinking distorted and warped by sin so that he thinks he can solve these problems on his own. His value system has now been distorted because he's disobeyed God and his uh, volition continues to lead him in the direction of disobedience to God. Only through a rebirth, a reacquisition of that human spirit can man go forward. This is what it looks like in terms of a chart. You have your human body and a soul, self-consciousness, mentality, conscience, and volition. And then there's a human spirit that... Interconnects everything. And I've, I've drawn those circles of the soul in such a way that they overlap because they are. They're, they're, we separate them for purposes of discussion, for purposes of just understanding what the different dimensions are, but they're all, they overlap and interconnect within our soul. Now, when Adam was created, this is what he looked like. But when he sinned, he lost that human spirit, which interconnected the elements of his soul in a way that he could understand God. Now, at the instant of salvation, what happens is we recover that human spirit. It is born again, and that is the idea in regeneration. Now, regeneration itself comes from a technical term in the Greek, and that word, there's actually two phrases. The first is, Paul in Genesia, which is only used two times in the Scripture, by the way, in Titus 3.5, where it states, "...not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saves us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit." Notice the phrase there, "...the washing of regeneration." Interesting. We're talking about being born again, but there's a washing, a cleansing that takes place there. The washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And they're connected together uh, in the Greek. Those are two different ways of p- talking about the same thing. And then the other phrase that's used by our Lord in John chapter 3, verse 3 and following, when he's talking to Nicodemus, as he said, Most assuredly I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus establishes as a, as a condition for being able to enter into the kingdom to be able to have eternal life. Now we'll come back to that in just a minute, but I want to make sure we understand what we're talking about before we look at some Scriptures. Regeneration is a term for spiritual birth. Something is born. I remember years ago talking with someone and they were disputing this issue. What do you mean by human spirit? I'm not sure I understand this. And I boiled it down and I said, what happens is that at salvation you acquire something. Something is given birth to by this very use of the terminology regeneration and and born again. There is something that is there, the instant after you trust Christ as your Savior, that wasn't there before. That something is born. There's something that Adam lost when he disobeyed God that, that caused his, a breach in his ability to understand God and obey God that he reacquires at faith. And the term that we use for that is human spirit. Now, just a little aside to many of you, you have to be careful with this word spirit and don't think that every time you see the word spirit somewhere, it either refers to A, the Holy Spirit, or B, the human spirit. Because the, both of those words are the word spirit is used a number of different ways in Scripture. Sometimes the word spirit refers to the whole immaterial part of man. talks about the spirit of Pharaoh. Well, that doesn't mean that Pharaoh was a believer. just is talking about his thinking. Sometimes the word soul is even used to stand for the Spirit. So you have to look at each passage on its on its own. But what we mean by by spiritual birth or being born again is that the moment a person expresses faith alone in Christ alone, and when you believe the Gospel, God in His omniscience knows when that happens. You don't have to pray a prayer. You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to say anything. The instant you trust that that... You recognize the truth of the gospel And you're thinking I'm trusting Christ At that instant You are regenerate You are saved at that instant And God the Holy Spirit Creates a human spirit And God the Father Simultaneously imputes eternal life And we'll say from our study that He imputes righteousness and eternal life To the human spirit And the believer passes from spiritual death To spiritual life That's Regeneration so regeneration is resolved by, I mean, this promise of spiritual death is resolved by regeneration. Now, the key passage to understand this is in uh, John chapter 3. It's in John chapter 3, and I want you to turn in your Bibles to John 3, and we'll just quickly go through this conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was the ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus was probably the best Bible teacher in uh, Israel at the time. His name, or his proper name, was probably not Nicodemus. Nicodemus means ruler of the Jews. And so he was probably a top Pharisee and Bible teacher. And he's heard about the miracles that Jesus has performed and that people are saying that He's the Messiah. And some of the miracles that He's performing fit the prophecies in Isaiah and other passages in the Old Testament that would indicate that someone was the Messiah. So he comes to Jesus at night. And I believe that the reason He came at night was because He's busy during the day. You know, for a long time I thought, well, He came at night because He didn't want anybody to see Him. But... Nicodemus, as a ruler of the Jews, has tremendous responsibilities, and he probably came at night because that was when he could come. And he came to Jesus and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Notice he's he's not sure what to ask. And he says, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And he's just... He doesn't really know what to ask for. And, and folks, a lot of times when you're witnessing to somebody, you're talking to somebody about spiritual things, they don't know anything. They're just dumber than dirt when it comes to spiritual things. And they're going to say some things that, you, you know, that are just screwy. Keep the focus on, on where you're headed and don't worry about what they're talking about. And that's how Nicodemus is. He's just, he's just trying to get somewhere and he doesn't know where he's going. So he just starts off, and Jesus, though, in his omniscience, knows what the issue is. And so in verse 3, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a person is born again, and here we have that phrase we looked at a minute ago, ganao anothen, which means born again. But Jesus uses that word anothen, which can also mean from above. And this is typical in John's writings. He uses words that have uh, double meanings. Because he wants you to focus on one thing, but think about another dimension of the meaning at the same time. And it's clear from the context, Jesus is talking about being born a second time. But that birth comes from above. And so Nicodemus is all confused over this. And he says, how can somebody be born again when he is old? You see, according to uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, there are six different ways in the rabbinic law, that a person could be born again. When a Gentile converted to Judaism, they were said to be born again. But Nicodemus was already a Jew. When a person was crowned king, they were said to be born again. But Nicodemus isn't of the tribe of Judah, so he can't be crowned king. At age 13, when a Jewish boy is bar mitzvahed and is officially a man, it is said that he's born again. At marriage, when a Jew married, he was said to be born again, but Nicodemus was already married. When a Jew is ordained a rabbi, is said to be born again, but Nicodemus has already been ordained a rabbi. And then when a rabbi became the head of a rabbinical school, he was said to be born again. And Nicodemus is a teacher in Israel, so that's already true of him. In other words, in all the six ways that a uh, a rabbi talked about being born again. Nicodemus had already qualified. And he's thinking, what do you mean? I've already done that. But Jesus is talking about something completely different. So he's, he's stymied. And so he says, well, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter into his mother's womb a second time? And so Jesus says, no, surely I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, what does he mean when he says to be born of the water and of the Spirit? The background for this, and we don't have time to go to it tonight, but I'll just point it out to you, is in Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-five to twenty-six, and in that passage, which was the only clear passage from the Old Testament that connected uh, cleansing and water to something in the future, it was a picture of the future regeneration of the nation. But water in that passage is a picture of of washing. And by the New Testament times, the rabbis only knew of cleansing. They only knew of cleansing of someone entering into Judaism, a Gentile being converted. So either a newborn at circumcision or a Gentile at conversion was washed. And when a newborn male or a Gentile male was circumcised, the Ritual was followed by an intense washing to try to scrub away the sin. Somewhere at home I've got a bar of soap that is, says on there, you know, for scrubbing away sin. Somewhere in storage now. But at that point, the new person was said to be a new creature entering into, into Judaism. And this is confirmed by several passages in the Mishnah. So the point that I'm making is that that regeneration and this understanding of being born again in Judaism was directly connected to the concept of being cleansed from sin. Now when we think of regeneration, we often think of just being born again, but we come over to Titus 3.5, and Paul says that it's the washing of regeneration. So what happens at regeneration is not only... Do you, at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, acquire a, a human spirit? But you are cleansed from sin at the same time, so that there is a purification that takes place from all pre-salvation sins. And it is at that point that the, the person who believes is cleansed by regeneration, and they become a new creature in Christ. So there's a connection here. Between uh, regeneration and what happens, as we'll study in a little bit, on, the, on positional uh, truth or being identified with Christ through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. All these things interconnect. So, logically, if we think this through, there's an order. First, you believe in Christ. You have faith alone in Christ alone. That is followed by cleansing, there is a cleansing from sin. That is followed by regeneration. That then imputation. Now, when I use the word follow, I'm using it in a logical sense, not chronological, because these things happen simultaneously and instantly as the work of God. So it's not like one, two, three, four, faith, and you don't don't have days or minutes or even seconds between these events. They all happen simultaneously, but there's a logical progression that takes place as there's cleansing, then regeneration, and then we come to the next uh, issue, which is our imputation of righteousness. So the fifth problem that we have to address in terms of man's salvation is not only is he born spiritually dead, which is resolved at regeneration, but he, when he is born, he lacks perfect righteousness. And a creature can't have, have an eternal relationship with God unless he has perfect righteousness. So there is something called Imputation. That takes place. An imputation is the assignment of perfect righteousness to the believer. God reckons or accounts it. It's an accounting term, it's a financial term. In fact, it's interesting how many of these terms have to do with finances. A picture of canceling of a debt or reconciling. When we talk about reconciliation, it's like reconciling a bank statement. There's a a, a redemption, expiation, imputation are all terms related to finances. And just as you would credit something to somebody's bank account, so your bank account spiritually is empty. In fact, it's got a negative balance. But the perfect balance of Jesus Christ's righteousness is assigned to you at the instant of salvation. And because of His righteousness, God looks at you and says, You're righteous. You're justified. I declare you legally to be justified. That's what justification is. It's not just as if you never sinned. It doesn't change you morally. You're still a sinner. You still have a constitutional defect of a sin nature. But what it does is it assigns to you, it covers over your sin with the perfect righteousness of Christ. So let's chart it something like this. You have the perfect righteousness and justice of God that have to be dealt with in terms of salvation. And here we are, down here in our body, and we've got sin, minus R. We, we, no matter how good you are, you just can't meet the standard of God. Isaiah 64, 6 says, All our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. No matter how good they are, no matter how wonderful your righteous deeds are, in God's eyes, your righteousness, your morality... All your goodness is garbage. Now, at the cross, our unrighteousness, our sins, are assigned to Christ. They're imputed to Him. Now, Jesus Christ was perfect righteousness. He was without sin. Scripture says, He made Him, He, God the Father, made Him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. What this means is our sin is assigned judicially to Jesus Christ. That's what took place between 12 noon and 3 p.m. on the day He hung on the cross, when there's darkness covering uh, Golgotha. And so our sin's assigned to Him. And He receives the legal imputation of that sin, and He pays the penalty for it on the cross. Now, when we come along and trust Christ as our Savior, then at the instant that we do that, along with being cleansed and regenerate, God the Father imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Christ. It's not our righteousness. It's His righteousness. And so now we are clothed, as it were, with His righteousness. So underneath that robe, there's our own unrighteousness. But what God is looking at is not our sin, not our corruption, but the perfect righteousness of Christ. So it's never dependent on what we do or who we are. And at that instant, His righteousness and justice declares us to be righteous. He looks at you and He says, you're righteous or you're justified. This is what the doctrine of justification means. We are justified by faith alone, and not by works. As a result of that, God's justice is able to bless us because it's blessing not anything that we ever do, but it's blessing the perfect righteousness of Christ which we possess. This is the doctrine of justification. So you can't talk about imputation without talking about justification. Imputation assigns righteousness to us. And at that instant, God's righteousness and justice declares us to be justified. And that we can then have a relationship with Him. This is true all through the Old Testament. The classic Old Testament example was Abraham. That Abraham had believed in the Lord And He had already reckoned it or imputed it to Him as righteousness. So Old Testament, New Testament, the basis is the same. You trust in the promise of God for salvation. the Old Testament, they looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. Now we look back. But we put our faith in Christ, and at that time of faith alone in Christ alone, we receive the imputation of righteousness and we're declared just. Now, there's a great Old Testament picture of this. Those of you who teach in prep school, this is a great illustration to communicate to kids. It takes place in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. And Zechariah speaking. He says, Then he, that is God the Father, showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. So you have these personages there standing in a courtroom scene. And you have Joshua, the high priest of Israel, standing there, and he is being uh, defended by the angel of the Lord, who is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, and standing at his right hand, accusing J- Joshua, saying, "You're not worthy to be the high priest. Who do you think you are? God? This guy's a lousy sinner. How can he represent the nation, Israel?" And so he, Satan is accusing. Joshua, And that's what Satan means. It's a legal term. It means an accuser. And so he is accusing Joshua. And then in verse 2 we read, And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you. So it is the Lord that is God the Son says to Satan, the Lord God the Father rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who's chosen Jer- Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And that's all of us. We are brands plucked from the fire. Our destiny was a lake of fire, but grace saves us. And then in Zechariah three, Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. And in verse 4, Then he answered, "...and spoke to those who stood before Him, saying, This is God the Father of the Supreme Court of Heaven, saying, Take away the filthy garments from Him. And to Him He said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on His head." So they put a clean turban on His head, and they put the clothes on Him. And the angel of the Lord stood by. This is a picture of the imputation of righteousness and the cleansing and its relation to the cleansing that takes place uh, at regeneration. All these things happen instantly in salvation, but first we have to trust Christ as Savior. So we've seen a solution to spiritual death and regeneration, and a solution to our lack of righteousness in imputation. And justification, and then the last brick in the barrier, the last problem, is our position in Adam. Now, what does that mean? Our position in Adam. See, the problem is, as is it's clearly stated in the first part of 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-two, for as in Adam all die. See, God so constructed reality that Adam was not only the physical, biological head of the entire human race but he was also the representative head. God structured things in such a way that Adam's decisions would affect all of his progeny. And he stood as both the physical, biological head and as the representative so that his decisions stood for the decisions of the entire human race. Now, a lot of folks come along and they say, how can... How just is this that one man 6,000 years ago makes a really bad decision and I'm born spiritually dead? Now that doesn't seem very fair, does it? Well, we have to understand why God structures things the way He does. Because He structures the human race with this uh, integral unity, one man can stand for the whole of humanity and cause the fall of all humanity. But on the positive side, One man can stand for the whole of humanity and save all of humanity. So by having this integral unity of all human beings, Jesus Christ can be the second Adam and die on the cross for us so that He can pay the penalty for everyone. So we're born in Adam. We're identified with him in his sin. We're... Receive at the instant of our birth the imputation of Adam's original sin so that we are condemned, not for our personal sins. You didn't know that, did you? You're not condemned for your personal sins according to Romans 5. You're condemned for Adam's sin. See, you sin personal sins not because because you have negative volition. You commit personal sins because you're born a sinner. There's an old saying we used to kind of twist people up with in seminary that do you sin because you're a sinner or are you a sinner because you sin? Let me say that again. Do you sin because you're a sinner or are you a sinner because you sin? See, you sin because you're a sinner. You're born that way. You're born fallen. You're born with a sin nature. You're born with a constitutional defect. You're born evil. You don't like that. Most people don't want to hear that. But we're all born evil. The heart is deceitful and wicked above all things, Jeremiah says. Who can know it? We're born evil. We're born fallen. We're born, as it were, shaking our fists at God, saying, I'm going to make it work. Nobody else managed yet, but I'm going to do it. And that is the cast and the orientation of our life. That's what... Uh, theologians refer to as total depravity. We're not all as bad as we could be, but every aspect of our nature, the totality of our being, has been affected by sin. So our position is in Adam. But at salvation, we're going to be identified with Christ rather than Adam. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Now, how are we identified with Christ? The best passage on this is in Romans 6, verses 2 and 3. There Paul raises the question rhetorically, well, if if we got grace because we sinned, let's go sin some more so we can get some more grace. You probably thought that along the way. And Paul says, no, you can't go that way. That's an illegitimate conclusion. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, we die to sin. We're not still in our sins, living in sin. Uh, We're dead positionally. Verse 3, Or Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Now, a lot of folks think of baptism as, as getting wet, as getting immersed. The idea of baptism has to do with immersion in something. There's wet baptisms and there's dry baptisms, and not, uh, but the key idea in a baptism is identification with something. It was a sort of an initiation rite in the ancient world. For example, you would have new recruits in the army go through boot camp, and they'd have an initiation rite when they graduated, and they would dip or immerse their spears into a bucket of pig's blood. And that was a sign that they were identifying themselves with violence and identifying their weapons with violence. And so the key idea is identification. So that when you had water baptism, when John the Baptist came along, and he's out by the Jordan, and he's taking Jews, and he is immersing them in the Jordan, he's identifying them with his kingdom message that you had to be cleansed to get into the kingdom of heaven. See, we saw a similar idea in John 3, didn't we? That's what that pictured. Believer's baptism pictures the same A similar kind of thing related to the cleansing that takes place in relationship to our position in Christ. So if we paraphrase this a little bit and say, Do you not know that all of us who have been identified into Christ have been identified into His death? We get the main idea that at the instant of salvation... At the instant of salvation, we are identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. We're identified with Him in His death, burial, and resurrection. And the phrase that's used to describe that in the New Testament is baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. Because it is God the Holy Spirit who identifies us positionally with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. That's why John said in Matthew 4.11... I baptize you by means of water, but the one who comes after me will baptize you by means of the Spirit and by means of fire. The baptism by fire comes at the end of the tribulation period and relates to judgment. But the baptism by means of the Spirit was yet future in during the life of Christ, it was still future just before He ascended. And in Acts 1.5, He says for the disciples to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came. And part of what happened on Pentecost was He not only indwelt believers, but this was the first time there was a baptism by means of the God the Holy Spirit. And so the believers were identified with Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection, this creates and begins the body of Christ. So that every believer, every one of you, was baptized by the Holy Spirit at the instant of salvation. It's non-experiential. You didn't know it happened when it happened. You didn't feel anything. If you spoke in tongues or had a religious experience, it didn't have anything to do with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is a forensic activity of God the Holy Spirit whereby He cleanses the believer, there's that washing metaphor there in baptism. He cleanses the believer and places them in the body of Christ. So you see that there are interconnections here between regeneration, which is called the washing of regeneration in Titus 3:5, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit being placed in Christ. And in that, we receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and there's the declaration that we are righteous. So what have I said here? As we go through the barrier, we realize that those first three elements, the fact of sin, the penalty of sin, and the character of God, are resolved by aspects of Christ's work that solve that problem for everybody. And that's the foundation of salvation. But you still have other things that aren't resolved. That's only resolved when you as an individual choose to trust Christ as your Savior. And so God provides the solution, but it's up to us to acquire the solution. And it's up to us to make that decision to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross as our substitute. And the instant we do that then the rest of the problems are solved. We're regenerated. We receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness and we're declared justified and we're placed into Christ. And those things happen instantly and simultaneously when we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. And we don't do anything to earn it. And we don't do anything to deserve it. And we can't do anything afterwards to merit it. It is all based on God's grace love and his care for us and this is why there can only be one way of salvation is because of the dimensions of the problem and the magnificence of God's solution with our heads bowed and our eyes closed Father we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word to come to a greater understanding of the dimensions of our salvation and how much you've done for us and how uh, simple the gospel is in terms of believing in Christ but how complex the work of Christ is in solving every dimension of the sin problem. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this evening that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. You can do that by simply believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. At that instant, God in His omniscience knows what you're trusting in And at that instant, you are regenerated. At that instant, you receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness and you're declared just. At that instant, you're placed into the body of Christ. You're identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. And you receive eternal life, which can never be taken from you. And Father, we pray that You would just challenge us with the things we studied. Help us to have a greater appreciation of our salvation. And may it motivate us to pursue spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.